Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, Nanaia Mahuta on foreign policy, Labour's mistakes and why she never joined Te Pāti Māori. I think fundamentally having a political party based on identity can be a challenge space. Then, what happens to Chatham Island's life when the lifeline to the mainland gets cut? So we had to destroy 400 cattle, um, which you've seen evidence of, and that wasn't a very nice thing, but oh, and they, were, they were put down because there was no, nowhere else to send them. And we're in Port Waikato as one party looks to pull off a by-election upset. Do you know no. which party she's from? No. no. National, are you? New Zealand first. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Good girl. We will have that for you shortly. But first, it probably hasn't escaped your attention that five weeks since polling day and 16 days since the final results were announced, we still don't have a new government. Christopher Lux and Winston Peters held in-person talks at an Auckland hotel yesterday and insisted they're close. We honestly are in the last stages. We're just trying to get that last uh, bit of understanding and, and uh, agreement between the parties. Um, I honestly think the ministerial uh, appointments and stuff will be fairly you know, quick, as I said. I don't think that's a big topic of conversation. Everybody's hit this with the right mentality, which is first and foremost a line on policy. We're going as fast as we possibly can. And uh, <laughs> I know everybody's impatient, but we've just got to get this finished. Now, it is worth noting it took 32 days 32 days from polling day for the three leaders of those three negotiating parties to sit in a room together. One News senior political reporter Benedict Collins is keeping a close eye on developments over the weekend. Kia ora Benedict, what's happening? Morena, well yeah, I was uh, stationed outside those hotels for a couple of days this week and it's not clear how fast, uh, to me, how, how fast things are progressing. On Thursday, uh, Christopher Luxon was coming out, he was telling us they were now in the final stages of this deal. Uh, David Seymour was coming out saying they were now on the cusp of a deal. On Friday they held, held more meetings and they came out and said they were making great progress. And then on Saturday, they came out and said they're now in the last stages of cutting a deal. Um, and and they, we know that they're uh, meeting again today. So, yeah, not sure how much progress they're actually making here. Do we know what the sticking points are at this stage? Well, we knew going in, we knew there were going to be a couple of tricky things, right? There was the ex-party's call for a referendum on the Treaty of Waitangi, something that Christopher Luxon had said would be really divisive. And we also know there was, you know, a lot of concern around uh, the National Party's tax plan, particularly allowing foreign buyers back into the housing market to buy properties worth more than $2 million, trying to fund it that way. It's not clear to me yet whether they've resolved these things or, or now they're, you know, focusing on, on other issues as they try and, you know get this deal over the line. And, and Christopher Luxon uh, indicated when speaking to reporters after those meetings yesterday that they were leaving the Cabinet appointments to the very last stage of negotiations. Does that come as a surprise to you? No, no, I think that they've made that quite clear throughout the negotiations. But I think, you know, looking back on all of this, you know, it was kind of an interesting strategy, I think, from Christopher Luxon. Remember, you know, just after the election, he was saying he was going to make this a really fast deal. He was confident he could do this quickly. He was really keen to uh, get up to APEC and mix and mingle with the uh, other world leaders, get out there on the world stage. You know, none of this has happened. So it is kind of, yeah... It, I found it really interesting that Christopher Luxon would come out here and try and, you know, put this time frame on these talks when clearly, you know, it's not in the ACT Party or the New Zealand First Party yeah. uh, best interest to try and rush these deals, right? And I think that's something you can lose sight of when we talk about these negotiations and how long they're taking. 
know, what they agree to here is going to affect what happens for the next three years. Mm. You know, these parties, they can't pop up in a year's time and say, we'd like to do something differently, right? Basically, this coalition agreement, this deal that they agree to now, that's going to affect everything that everything that they can do for the next mm. three years. So it is important, you know, that they take their time and, you know, and get as much as they can and, and get a good deal, you know, so that the people who voted for them feel like they got their uh, votes worth. Yeah. Benedict, you get the sense that collective impatience over the length of these negotiations is starting to build a little bit. How is public pressure around the time it's taking for this deal to be sorted likely to affect the final stage of negotiations? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was um, out around the country early, earlier this week and everyone you talk to is like, how, how on earth can it take this long? Especially given, you know, what a strong performance we saw on election night from the National Party, you know, in such a powerful position there. And then, you know, you have uh, New Zealand First just getting over that threshold and act on around 8%. But, you know, this is MMP, right? It has kind of... They, the big parties, they have to negotiate mm. with, with the smaller ones. But, yeah, I think a lot of people out there in the general public look at this and, like, you know, how on earth can it take this long? Especially given we know that, you know, ACT, um, David Seymour and Christopher Luxon have kind of been working all year kind of discussing how they might form this government, right? Yeah, but, but, but do you think that, um, like I say, that collective impatience is likely to mean that parties are perhaps going to make greater concessions than they might otherwise have made? And, and if so, which parties are those? <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, the ball's kind of in the Christopher Luxon's court there, right, given he was the one who talked up the quick deal, um, whether or not they're having to compromise a bit more. But I also understand from talking to people um, connected with the talks, the leaders are pretty um, insulated at the moment. They're not, you know, they're very, very focused on these deals, whether or not they're getting this kind of public feedback that, yeah. you know, public is really, you know, growing impatient or not. I think they are kind of kept you know, kept away from what's going on outside in the uh, wider world as they really focus on this deal as well. And, and honestly, in a month or so, so say they're able to organise this deal, finalise it, get a government sorted in the next few days, in a month or so, is it really going to matter? Yep. Well, no, I, I guess for, for the incoming government, though, right, Christopher Luxon's talked mm. up a big game about how much he wants to get done before Christmas. Mm. And now they're starting, you know, if, if these talks go on for another few days, it's another week where Parliament can't sit. You know, we're going to come into a really rushed schedule down at Parliament when it you know, comes to them trying to get different initiatives, you know, into legislation, mm. get, start getting them passed through the Parliament. That's where it's going to get, um, you know, tricky for the National Party because they are running out of time before Christmas. OK, so, so the conversations yesterday were held in Auckland. What are you expecting once they've reached a deal in terms of process for actually formally forming the next government? Yeah, I, I don't even know whether they've, they've figured it out themselves yet, but I'd expect them to stay in, in Auckland. It, it looks, you know, given that um, David Seymour and Christopher Luxon didn't, didn't meet yesterday, it looks like they've kind of squared away that side. It's really just National and New Zealand first now really kind of working on that final part of the deal. I would expect once they have, you know, they're all in agreement, they've, they've um, signed these deals, that they would come back down to Wellington, that they'd announce the, um, the formation of the new government down here, um, you know, given uh, this, this is the capital and this is the parliament, I'd expect to see them back here as pretty much once they've done that deal to you know, launch the new government and, and get things rolling in parliament again. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Benedict. We uh, really appreciate it and good luck for whatever the next few days slash weeks slash months bring. <laughs>
Nanaia Mahuta has been a Member of Parliament for 27 years. After first entering as a 26-year-old on Labour's list back in 1996, she went on to hold the Te Tai Hauaudu and Hauraki Waikato seats, becoming a Senior Member of Cabinet along the way. But in last month's election, as Te Pāti Māori swept six of the seven Māori seats, Nanaia Mahuta missed out on being returned to Parliament. This week, I travelled to King Country in the whenua of Ngāti Maniapoto. I sat down with Nanaia Mahuta at Te Tōkanganui a Noho Wharanui, and I began by asking how she's thinking about the election result. Well, democracy and the voters have spoken, so you have to accept uh, the outcome, even though it wasn't the outcome you hoped for. Um, for me personally, I get a chance to go home after 27 years of service, which has been an absolute privilege. Um, and I am doing a lot of reflection about uh, my time in Parliament, the ups and the downs, but also the last election and what we can learn from it. OK, I, I want to know what you can learn from it, first of all. Well, I think social media has played its part in quite a significant way in various social media platforms, and that amplifies pretty much uh, that people are consuming their information from different places, where previously it used to be the newspaper. So we have to be really alert to that. Also, that in the Māori electorates, a younger vote did turn out. Uh, so we have to be alert to the fact that the demographics of Māori is young, and they are looking for something. And then possibly in a more political sense, uh, what people stand for and what they value has to be very clear and very different, uh, and you can't kind of homogenise um, values. Yeah, you have to accentuate um, where, you, where you differ, and what people are looking for is hope and vision and leadership. Uh, so I think all of those things taken together um, give us some salient learning points. Do, do you think on, on that final point there that Labour played to the centre too much? I think so, and I think that you know the centre is a vote that will go with its uh, interests, um, its primary interests at heart, whatever that looks and feels like. Uh, but what we needed to do is definitely speak to our values and the things that we stand for, and we needed to absolutely assure our core vote uh, that we were continuing with the type of progress that was going to be good for them. Uh, working people, uh, but also people who had aspiration for the future of the country, and then offer a future, offer a vision for where we wanted to take the country. And so in a policy sense, what might that alternative have been? Well, I think there was very much a focus on bread and butter issues, which always speaks, for example, to the Māori electorate, but perhaps didn't accentuate it in a way that people felt that we were hearing how people were hurting. Uh, so that perhaps uh, there'll be some reflection on that, that particular issue, but also given that times are forecast to get a lot more harder, the aspiration part is therefore how are we going to address the bread and butter issues but still mm. uh, seek out the types of opportunities that will guarantee people jobs, better wages, um, not compromising the, the, the environment um, and also being very progressive and continuing to be progressive around our aspirations for Māori, for Pacifica um, and, and for our diverse communities. Tax? Yeah, tax, uh, I think that has been a point of reflection. Um, GST off uh, food didn't really speak to the voters and that was shown to be the case. Uh, fundamentally, going down a road where we're going to tackle systemic um, challenges within our tax system means we do have to go back to the drawing board on the capital gains tax. What was it about Te Pāti Māori that brought out so many younger Māori voters? 
I think the message of uh, Aotearoa House spoke to a new generation. What that represents in real terms, I think, is yet to be determined. Uh, but the fact that younger voters got out, and as I said earlier, social media platforms did have an influencing impact on certain demographics and the young voter was an area where we did see social media platforms playing its part. Do you think um, Te Pāti Māori have the experience and strategy at this stage to be able to work the levers of power within Parliament? Well, they're sitting on the opposition benches, so they're not, they don't um, have any access uh, to levers of powers except being a part of a strong opposition. You brought up social media a couple of times. Outside of the ways in which social media was used to connect with young Māori voters, what do you mean specifically by the other influences it had in the election? Are you talking about opposition to Labour? I think that that was the case. I certainly did experience a lot of uh, personal uh, opposition through various social media platforms. Um, and also people were consuming their information from you know very diverse channels. Uh, and perhaps we underestimated a source of truth that would counter some of that missile disinformation. And that's something to be alert to. Uh, going forward and I think for all political parties mm. and even political commentators and the media uh, we have to turn our minds to uh, greater integrity in the information that people consume to help them make decisions especially during election time. Labour was hammered by critics and opposition parties for policies like co-governance and the Māori Health Authority. But at the same time, many Māori voters have supported a party which has an even stronger stance than Labour when it comes to a tiriti-centric Aotearoa. Where does that leave Labour's Māori caucus? Well, Labour's Māori caucus is in a very strong uh, position because yeah. it uh, represents Māori interests across a broad platform of issues with the treaty at its heart. But if we think about the working population and the need to protect workers' rights, uh, then la the Labour Party is still that party in my mind. We're also rebuilding uh, our team. Uh, so we've got new talent there. We want to grow that talent and we want to ensure that we are future fit for the fight uh, that will be required uh, to, again, secure the confidence of voters and become government to be able to take our country forward. Do you feel like the Labour Māori caucus made sacrifices or compromises in the interests of the, of the wider team? Well, when you're in politics, every politician knows that compromise and sacrifice is, actually goes hand in hand with politics. So, so was it worth and, it? And uh, I think the incoming government will lend that very quickly too. <laughs> was it worth it then? If, if the Labour's Māori caucus had, had to make compromises within that, that wider caucus, and you look at the result of this election, was it worth it? Well, if you look at the achievements, absolutely, and we wouldn't recoil from that. We have a dedicated day to recognise our first Māori public holiday that acknowledges Mātauranga Māori, and that's Matariki. Supporting Māori wards, establishing the Māori Health Authority, and focusing on equity of health outcomes for Māori, for Pacific, for remote communities, and for you know, and elderly. We've done so much during our time in government, supported Te Reo development, and it's, you know, it's beginning to thrive in ways that are shaping the fabric of our nation. Those are all positive gains, and there are many more. You entered Parliament in 1996, so you've been both the baby of the House and the mother of the House. Take me back to 2004. Can you talk us through how you navigated 
the debate over the foreshore and seabed? Well, it was difficult because Labor was the government at the time and challenging decisions were made uh, by our Attorney-General, um, which as a Māori MP in the government, we had to defend and contest within um, within our own whare, if you like. So it was a really difficult time. And then you, you had the kind of the public uh, backlash around iwi versus kiwi, uh, the Don Brash speech, um, and things were being inflamed racially um, at that particular time. You asked me how I navigated it with some, some challenge. I found it difficult, but I also knew that I had to use the political process and my understanding of the process to anchor in interests that would, to the best extent possible, uh, support the aspirations of my electorate. We still had un outstanding claims for the Waikato River, for the West Coast Harbours, and then there were other treaty settlement claims that had elements of what might have been impacted by the foreshore and seabed. So I used the process, secured some gains, took myself off the list, put that mandate back to the electorate and said, look, I think I've done the best that I can, mm. um, but it's up to you. And they put me back in to keep doing the mahi, and I did that. How close did you get to joining Tariana Turia? Not at all. Um, people have since asked me the question too, would I ever join the Māori Party? And that's not really been um, something that I've given thought to. Um, I think fundamentally, Having a political party based on identity can be a challenge space, and if we, um, I get it that having an indigenous party is a positive signal from a country like New Zealand, I get that. But if we think about the changing diversity of our demographic here in New Zealand, and we have other uh, population groups saying that we want a identity-based political party, we've got to ask ourselves, is that the future we see for New Zealand? Now, I could be proven wrong on that, yeah. and I'm happy to be, but actually I would have hoped that New Zealand is the kind of country that by and large has a view with, across the, the, the centre of, of public opinion that asks big questions like what, country, what kind of country do we want to be in terms of our national identity? How do we bring Māori as Indigenous people and the rest of New Zealand closer together rather than further apart? How do we articulate that? What's the constitutional basis for all of that? And that's kind of where I think much of the political discourse um, should be focused on so that we don't lose our way and yeah. get pulled by extreme opinions. We only have to look around the world and see how extreme opinions have, have dented the fabric of democracy, but also dented that sense of nation building, social inclusion, uh, respect for greater diversity. Uh, uh, this is just a really interesting point, and so I, I want to make sure that I understand you correctly. You're saying you think a party that is based on identity is potentially problematic. I I'm saying that it's not something that I've entertained because I know that Māori across New Zealand have very diverse political views. And while I get the fact that an Indigenous party mm. is a positive reflection for New Zealand about how we've evolved, if that Indigenous party is never in a position to exercise influence over the way that the country can go, then what is the point? Because you cannot just sit in opposition. And what I've experienced in my whole time of serving my electorate in Parliament is unless you have those political levers to be able to uh, secure gains and be able to promote policies and ideas that will take your people forward, 
why are you in Parliament? And I think that's going to be a big challenge. I'm sure the Māori Party, because it has had at least two iterations of um, articulating its aspirations, I'm sure they're thinking about that um, right now, and it remains to be seen how that evolves uh, going forward. Do you think that Labor's handling of the co-governance provisions in Three Waters contributed in any way to a sense that they were being sneaky about the concept of co-governance? No, look, if you look back at the debate and how it unfolded, uh, the, uh, the local government sector themselves, or a, a portion of the local government sector, mischaracterised the provisions of uh, the water reform that I was promoting. Because in terms of the professional boards that were being established, that was absolutely skill-based. And so from a governance point of view, skill-based metric being applied to these professional boards for water um, management and investment. Um, the joint decision-making body that was established, made up of iwi and councillors, basically reflected what many councils already have. Could the messaging have been simpler, though? Yes, absolutely. Could I have got more support from a broader range of senior ministers during the time of promoting those forms, reforms? Absolutely. You, you didn't feel like you had the support within Cabinet? Well, again, when people look back at the, the, the debate, uh, the passing of the legislation through the House, they will have seen that um, I was pretty much well carrying that load. It was recognised by Jacinda, who uh, prior to her departure said, look, you've carried a pretty heavy, hefty load there. We're going to, um, I want you to focus on um, foreign affairs. And that was followed through by uh, Chris Hipkins. So, you know... Um, it, it was. That, it was heavy going. We established a, a water quality regulator in Taumata Arawai. Uh, the arrangements around the actual reform programme done in two tranches of legislation and initiated economic regulatory reform to get the whole system right. Now, that was done... Pretty, the policy elements of that was done uh, over four to five years, which is a lot of heavy lifting. And I'm proud of... Look, even now, you can't unsee what you've seen. And the numbers make sense in terms of scale and aggregation to debt finance infrastructure. But that's only part of the solution. If you look around the world, they, they are all implementing a similar type of model. How did it affect you not having the, the support you felt you needed and deserved when trying to push through those, through those reforms? Well, I think if I dwelled too long on the support I didn't get, then I wouldn't do the things that I needed to do to make change happen. Because if you dwell on what's not happening rather than focus on what needs to be done, you become distracted. So I just carried on. It must have impacted you at the time. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd probably... It probably did in all sorts of different ways, but again, what I know, uh, having been a minister and having observed a number of ministers, I didn't want to be the kind of minister that just sat in my, on my hands and thought, no, nah, this is all too hard, I'll take the easy path. You said that Jacinda had acknowledged the load you'd carried with those reforms. Could she have supported you in a more meaningful way earlier? I think a critical assessment of her in particular and her actions, you would have seen that she did support me very early on at all key junctures where core signals needed to be registered with the sector and with New Zealand that this is an issue that can't um, linger and we can't kick the can down the road. So, you know, I have to acknowledge um, her leadership right from the very beginning in terms of supporting what I was trying to achieve.
After the break, as Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta was criticised for her initial response to the Hamas attack, I ask her what happened. Hoki maiti, we welcome back to Q&A. For the second part of our interview with Nanaya Mahuta, I asked about foreign policy. Do you trust China to be a responsible international player? They'd probably ask the same thing of us. You know, in, in, in a very complex and challenging environment, we have to navigate that relationship with care and consideration because there are some big players in our region, uh, not just China, uh, the US, um, uh, that, that require vigilance and ongoing management. And that's why I use the analogy of the dragon and the tanifa mm. because, you know, it's not about being the biggest... Uh, player in the field or the biggest, you know, dragon or tanifa for that matter, it's understanding each other to the degree uh, that a respectful relationship enables you to have a robust relationship and to still achieve some shared outcomes. And I say that very deliberately because even when we sent the signal to, to our key exporters that they needed to diversify their export platform and not be totally reliant on China, after COVID, exports went up mm. to China. So, you know, we, we're, we're kind of caught as a government, as a nation, on what our exporting communities want as well. And so we have to manage this particular relationship with care. That was a very diplomatic answer. It's, but, it's, but it's, it's the answer that matters for all of us. To not, to not give that relationship care, mm. like we give care to the relationship with the US, like over time, we're going to have to figure out how we relate to the new formation of the Global South interests across the Indo-Pacific. We are going to have to be a lot more agile in managing complex relationships in a more vigilant way. Is it going to be a binary choice, US or China? I, I would hope not. And in fact, if we look at the way in which the European states are trying to understand their own relationship with China, uh, they are de-risking their relationship rather than decoupling because they too are dealing with the same challenges. And we cannot have uh, a world that has greater divides. Mm. We need to find ways to connect and work together. So documents released under the OIA show you rejected advice from MFAT officials on a tweet that you posted regarding the Middle East conflict. So the advice you received was to send an initial tweet that acknowledged the terror and rocket attacks originated in Gaza, and you rejected that advice instead and talked about conflict between Israel and Gaza. Why was that? Yeah, once I got further information, I quickly clarified that and condemned the actions of Hamas. Uh, and there was a time delay in terms of when the information came through, when I saw it and when, when the tweet went out. But that said, we have, as a country, and during my time as Minister for Foreign Affairs, drawn a line under some key statements. Firstly, condemned the actions of Hamas, called for the unconditional release of prisoners held hostage by Hamas. We've supported Israel to defend itself in accordance with international law. We've also caused, uh, called for a humanitarian pause in order for humanitarian aid corridors to be opened up and we've identified that the huge loss of civilian lives is unacceptable and is, is harrowing as we continue to see this conflict unfold. Was it a mistake to send that tweet? 
Oh, look, I, I can't dwell on mistakes. We drew a line as soon as we got more information around condemnation of the actions you, of Hamas. You, you obviously had an and if you look at the uh, statements of the UN Secretary General, although it's not comparable, he too got uh, polarised for uh, comments that were seen to be too soft. And then, again, with, uh, he clarified those comments. So if, if I get too caught up on, on original tweets based on information I had at the time, but have since clarified, mm. then we're focusing on the wrong thing. Okay, Jen. last question on this though. Based on information you had at the time, you had official advice from MFAT. They drafted the tweet and you rejected that advice for your own wording. The information came to me through another party. So Who was the, the party? The, the information came to me through another party. So I, all I'm saying as I drew a line under that uh, in terms of clarifying uh, the actions of Hamas and, and condemning them. And that, that's all I'll say on the matter, because do you know what? Too many innocent lives are being lost for us to focus on things that actually we should be, which is opening up diplomatic channels and calling for humanitarian pools for aid to flow to Gaza. People are without food, water, energy or medical supplies. And we also need to ensure that there's an acceleration of talks, real talks around the two-state solution. And that's, that's got to be the absolute focus of any discourse that is happening right at this moment around Israel and Gaza. And we are a part of an international community that can bring pressure to bear mm. on that course of action. Sorry, this is the absolute last question. Was it an official source, this third party that gave you information? Look, I've, I've made my comment. At the end of the day, I clarified for the purposes of public positioning of New, for New Zealand that we condemned the terrorist actions of Hamas. But it, we, I think if we step back from the tweet, or a tweet, we have to ask ourselves, can we continue to play a strong and influential role uh, alongside international partners about an end game here? We have to, we have to be a part of de-escalating and calling for uh, Israel and Hamas to go into uh, other types of talks that will not lead to the further loss of civilian lives. It's a catastrophe, catastrophe for humanity humanity to see the increased loss of lives, most of whom are women and children. It's just, it's horrific. You criticised the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade as draconian, but you voted against taking abortion out of the Crimes Act. So how do you square that circle? Well, it's the fact that, uh, you know, uh, abortion is a conscience issue here in New Zealand and politicians make that decision. The Roe versus Wade uh, decision was made by the judiciary and I think that that in itself presents a challenge because your elected representatives, in my mind, should be leading the debate. And I accept the, the outcome of Parliament when a vote is uh, made. I wouldn't be the type of politician that would try and overturn a decision such as that, especially on a conscience uh, issue. So it was really around the role of the judiciary on an issue like that. That was the draconian element? Yeah, that was, a, that was the draconian element. The nature of the decision, right. So would you still support having abortion in the Crimes Act? Um, I think it's a health issue. I think it is a health issue. Uh, you'll see that one of the other votes that I made was to create safe spaces mm. around uh, abortion clinics mm. so that those women who were making decisions would be um, treated um, with respect for the decision that they had made. But if it is a health issue, should it be in the Crimes Act or not? Um, 
Probably not. So there's reflections, eh? There's, there's reflections and reflections. But this is the thing that you have to grapple with when you... The, the, I think it's abortion and alcohol issues mm. are generally the issues that are considered conscience issue. Would you support New Zealand becoming a republic? Yes. And I've been on the record for a long time saying that that, in my view, is the, the future direction that we should be going. Um, if we can underpin uh, that decision with a strong discourse around our constitutional arrangements, the place of the treaty. And what should that be, do you think? Well, How would we go about navigating the place of the treaty if we were... Probably with some difficulty, yeah. but it's a far more productive place to have a conversation than a referendum on the treaty. A referendum on the treaty will mean that uh, the majority of New Zealanders potentially might see no future for the treaty in the future of our country, whereas a constitutional conversation around the place of the treaty within the context of a republic is a healthy debate, and we should be opening up those doors, and it's a long conversation, but it could be a focused conversation. So, so what you're saying is that we would use Tetiriti and the principles of Tetiriti to inform a constitution under a New Zealand Republic? Absolutely. Absolutely we would. And, you know, we will have academics, we will have iwi, we will have New Zealanders, we will have various stakeholders who will want to uh, open up uh, a conversation that plausibly enables us to contemplate whether or not the treaty should be a formal part of a written constitution or whether it should remain with some continued moral obligation alongside a formal constitution or some other kind of iteration. But the point is, it's about how do we build a nation based on the foundation that we have inherited, not how do we ignore the foundation that we inherited and then create this kind of sense of nationhood. I don't think that path will ever serve us very well. I want to finish up with some reflections then, and I know it will be hard when you think back over your parliamentary career to put one thing at the top of the list, but is there a proudest moment, is there a proudest achievement, something you feel particularly connected to? I think there are so many. Um, it would be really difficult. I don't think I've changed as a person. I think people who knew me when I first started in Parliament and they have known me since and now that I've uh, left Parliament, they'll say, y you know, sure, you matured, gained a lot more information, but essentially your, your character as a person remained the same. So, you Which know, is I'm, an achievement for a period I don't in leave Parliament bitter. I don't leave bitter. Mm. I leave having been, felt very proud um, about the achievements that I have made. And I've had two beautiful children along the way. Um, and they've seen um, me grow and flourish, and I've seen them grow and flourish during my time in service. But I've also remained kind of um, closely connected to my electorate and the relationships that I've formed over a long period of time, and I'll continue to honour those relationships. But as a person, I haven't changed. I'm it, not bitter. Is, is there something at the top of the list when it comes to unfinished business? Is there something you really wish you just had a little bit more time or support to...? I think staying, staying true to the spirit of why I went into Parliament, and that was during the, at the beginning of the treaty settlement process, uh, it was to ensure that all the treaty settlements across... Uh, uh, Tainui Waka could um, be completed and the only outstanding big settlement um, of an iwi uh, degree that still needs to be kind of passed through the house is the Hauraki uh, Collective of Settlements and that's to get to complete their legislation. 
uh, I would love to see that happen so that um, the self-determination aspirations of the iwi within Tainui Waka can be achieved and then they can start to look for cooperative ways of working together to strengthen their aspiration for the future within this part of the country. So, When do you think we'll have the first Māori elected Prime Minister? Soon, I hope. Is Soon there someone hope. in Parliament you think, oh... Probably, some, so, probably there are many candidates, and, you know, a day's a long time in politics, so is a week. But I, I would hope uh, that young New Zealanders see themselves as a part of our political future and that it doesn't burn them out. I, I'm a bit worried about some of the toxic aspects that might actually burn people out before they even get the opportunity to make a difference. So we have to put a lot of supports in there, I'm pretty sure. But yeah, I don't think we're too far off, Jack. I reckon we might be fairly close to our first elected Māori Prime Minister. And how about you? You don't seem like much of a thumb twiddler. Have you thought about what the next few years might entail? Probably a lot of service to do a lot of things as well. And um, look, I've just said to a lot of whānau, I'm going to just take this time to do me, do my little family, rest, um, unpack a lot of things um, in my mind, but also literally, um, and then let's see what the new year brings. But I'm, you know, I'm ready for a new chapter. As I say, I'm not bitter. I will watch with interest the progression of the incoming new government, but also how uh, those in opposition continue to do their role um, because they have a responsibility to our democratic process to do their well, role really well. And then, for the most part, doing mum stuff as well. <laughs> I hope you can enjoy that. Oh, I will, I yeah. will. Nanaia Mahuta. We spoke at Te Tōkanga Nui Anoho Whare in Tekuiti earlier this week. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call mai. These are our main platforms. You can flick us an email. You can find us on X or on Facebook. Coming up, if you've got election campaign fatigue, spare a thought for the voters and candidates in Port Waikato. But after the break on Q&A, the government promised a new supply boat for the Chatham Islands. But residents on the island are still waiting and the impact has been massive. Frustration is growing on the Chatham Islands over the lack of progress on a new cargo ship used to supply essentials. The government promised $30 million in last year's budget for a new ship. The current vessel is rapidly approaching 40 years old. It's prone to breakdowns. Sounds like me. It's super unreliable, which is leading to all sorts of headaches for the people on the Chathams. Here's Kushla Norman. 800 kilometres from the mainland, the Chathams come into view. Population 660. Touching down among the tourists, the new MP, Julianne Genta from the Greens, swapping out for Paul Eagle, formerly of Labour, who is now the Chathams Council CEO. <laughs> this is Waitangi, the island's nerve centre. It all feels a long way from Wellington. Diesel powers the economy and livelihoods depend on one old, unreliable cargo ship that's not docked when we visit. And this famous boat that you rely on so much, the vessel, it comes into here. Yeah, the Southern Tiari. But there was no Southern Tiari for four months this year. It was away getting fixed until August. The island nearly ran out of diesel. We had about a couple of days left of diesel left. Um, to keep the generators going until the actual ship actually arrived. That must have been pretty terrifying. What would have happened in a situation like that? 
there was nothing we could do because you couldn't get an alternative. Yeah, you couldn't get an alternative ship here in time. We called the Navy; they couldn't get here till next year. Um, you could bring in a plane, but they could only bring a small supply. You know, the Hercules something, but only a small supply of diesel. So essentially, we were, the lights would have gone out, and that was that would have been disastrous. The island should get the ship twice a month, but it's more like every three weeks, and that's if things are going well. Breakdowns are common. You can't run a business and you can't run a farm if, if it keeps staying the same, so we want change. I'm just going to sort these out. There are two shops on the island. We've run out of, uh, you know, milk, creams, uh, yeast, flour, the basics, pet food. What happened this year when the boat didn't come for four months? We got really, really low. Um, that's when the plane picked up the slack for us. We were lucky enough it was out of tour season, so we managed to get a bit of freight through. Um, but of course, the price um, increase reflected that. And things are pricey. For a two-litre bottle of milk, you're looking at nearly $15. And for a block of butter, well, that's nearly $13. So prices are double, if not more than double, of what it would be on the mainland. It's not just imports, the island's live animal exports are also at the mercy of the ship. Farmers have shifted far less stock this year and we discover the consequences. So Stephen and I have been driving along this road and we've probably seen about half a dozen cattle carcasses. These cattle were put down by Tony Anderson. His farm was overstocked with animals that couldn't get on the ship. He says they would have starved. So we didn't have the grass. So we had to destroy 400 cattle, um, which you've seen evidence of. And that wasn't a very nice thing, but and they, were, they were put down because there was no, nowhere else to send them. Is there anything that you could have done differently? Was this a case of poor farm management, perhaps? Oh, I'm sure I've got problems. Most of our animals will go prime, which means that they're well cared for, well looked after, and if they get off the island at the right time, we don't, our systems are fine. See those bodies by the lagoon. What's going to happen to them? They'll run away. They will turn into fertiliser. That's just what happens, you don't pick them up and take them anywhere? They did. It's pretty brutal. It's a brutal place. The Ministry for Primary Industries is aware some animals had to be humanely culled due to limited feed. It's not aware of any breaches of animal welfare standards on the Chathams during the ship's outage. There are 42 farms across the Chathams, few are making a profit. Tony's once valuable lambs couldn't get on the ship when it mattered, now they're mutton. So they've gone from a gloss of about $140 down to about, at the moment, in today's market, perhaps $60. But it costs $40 to ship them to New Zealand. So you can make 20 bucks per animal? So, so, so we've just lost $200,000. An abattoir has been floated as a possible solution, but what people here want most is a reliable shipping service. The Southern Tiari is owned and run by the Chathams Enterprise Trust. It's 35 years old, and in last year's budget, $30 million was set aside to replace it. The Trust is yet to see that money. We so badly need our new vessel. Our current vessel 
since survey has suffered um, mechanical and physical um, failure, uh, our schedule is consistently behind time, our island is really struggling because we don't have a reliable, timely um, shipping service at the moment, and we are at risk of a breakdown with another um, service outage, which would just cripple our island. You're meant to have a new ship by 2025. Do you think that will happen? I, I think it is entirely unrealistic that we're going to have a replacement vessel trading by 2025. And so why has this stalled? I wish I, wish I could answer that easily. Uh, we needed to demonstrate to the government that we had a, uh, an ownership plan, a, a governance structure and an operating model that was suitable. You've done that? Absolutely, in spades. In a statement, the Transport Ministry told Q&A it's a complicated project involving construction of a customised vessel and they've been working to identify an appropriate delivery partner. That's a pretty amazing walk out there, I don't know. The new MP for the Chathams, which is in fact part of the Rongatai electorate, is schooling up on the island's history and challenges. Julianne Genta's priority is finding out what's going on with the replacement ship. It is somewhat mysterious to me why money appropriated in 2022 hasn't been able to move forward to a procurement process because procuring a boat takes some time. You want to get on with it quickly because it will still be years before they get a new boat once that process starts. So you would have expected that money to have been drawn down by now? As the local MP, I'll be asking questions and certainly contacting uh, the public service to try and find out what needs to move forward. It must be like Christmas Day down here when the ship comes in. <laughs> it sure is. And the other thing when you're ordering, you can forget the one basic thing and you have to wait for it for another sort of three weeks. Kusha Norman on the Chathams. After the break on Q&A, aside from a win in the Port Waikato by-election, what else is Andrew Bailey chasing? <laughs> Tēnā koutou, welcome back. Despite concerns voter turnout in the Port Waikato by-election would be low, the Electoral Commission reported a cracking first week of advanced voting. It's one of the bluest electorates in the country, with incumbent Andrew Bailey holding the seat, formerly known as Hunua, for the last nine years. With Labour, ACT and the Greens not standing candidates, Bailey's main competition is New Zealand First's candidate. Reporter Fina Owen checked in on the campaigns. It is a cracking penalty. Righto, start him away there. Going to be what? Going to be 135 to go. At the Tuako sale yards, the talk is about the low prices farmers are getting for their lambs. 32 bad. 5 at 1, 32, 3. The incumbent MP for Port Waikato Nationals, Andrew Bailey, has come along to chew the fat and spring into action when livestock are on the loose. Jumping bagger. He's also there to remind these guys to vote. Are you going to vote, eh? Absolutely. Hey? Hey? Absolutely. We know who we're voting for too, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. But he's worried his potential voters will be complacent. It's doubly worse because a lot of people think I'm actually going to win, and unless they turn out and vote, uh, we don't know who's going to win. The Port Waikato electorate stretches from the Manukau heads down to Takaufata. It takes in towns like Pokino, Waiuku and Pukekoe. 
New Zealand Firsts' Casey Costello is considered Andrew Bailey's main challenger. Some of the other parties have said this is unwinnable. You're already in Parliament, safely in Parliament, you're number three, so why are you doing this? It's my town. I, I mean, this is really important to me. This is where I policed, this is where I live, this is where I've lived most of my life, this is where most of my family live. Um, it's important to me that we get a strong local representation. For starters, Costello and Bailey have had to spread the word that there's a by-election going on. It was really funny because when we started putting signs up, I started getting messages and emails from people saying, you know, trying not to get me in trouble, sort of like, you know, do you know your hoardings are still up because, you know, the election's over and I had to explain that, you know, we've actually got a by-election. Look at this, so vote 13. Is that your graffiti, Andrew? No, I wish it was, but um, thankfully someone's done it. Officially, nine candidates are standing in this by-election, but one has now defected. That's Scotty Bright from Democracy NZ. It's about the Port Waikato electorate and representing the people here to the best that we can, and we think New Zealand First has got the best ability to do that. I heard that you'd been uh, on the phone to some of the uh, other candidates trying to convince them to go with New Zealand First. Well, I wasn't really trying to convince them, I was just telling them my position, you know. I think that it's crazy standing if you don't have a chance uh, in this electorate, you're just attracting the votes. I think everybody knows that climate change is a farce and if they don't, they need to actually go away and do, do some research. But Kim Turner told him she's staying loyal to NZ Loyal and New Zealand's Alfred Ngaro is busy selling his strategy. Andrew Bailey's already in, he's on the list. Casey Costello is great, she's on the list as well. You get a chance to vote in a third electorate MP. Jill Ovens from the Women's Rights Party wants to fill in the gaps. So I'm asking those people who support Labour, Greens or Act to consider voting for me. Well, yeah. Andrew, hope you go hey, well. Hey, hey. Yeah, yeah. National. You're a good kid. <laughs> do, do, do you know who the National MP is? Yeah, Andrew Bay. We're about to see you. Do you know what he looks like? Is it, is it you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought so. Yeah, slightly different from your photo. Can I ask you who you're voting for? New Zealand first. So you're voting for Casey Costello? You sure am. If you're in this area, vote for Casey. <laughs> Port Waikato election, by-election. Good fun. For a while, Casey Costello was the mystery New Zealand First candidate who suddenly appeared at number three on their list. Her working background is in police on the beat and later as a CIB detective. Then she went on to security. I went down to Parliament to run security and operations and yeah, worked for a few years there. Then back here as a private investigator exposing cases of migrant exploitation. And last month, she was back in Parliament as an MP. I walked up to the front doors and it just, like it, you know, to think that I was going there as an MP, just amazing, just incredible. I oh, just so humbling. I just, I feel just so privileged to be able to be in that position. Do you know which party she's from? No. No, nationalised. New Zealand First. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> Good girl. The New Zealand First candidate is from a large Ngāpuhi family. Two of her ancestors signed the treaty, but she has views some find challenging on the status of Māori. You were a spokesperson for Hobson's Pledge and uh, there'd be people who would dismiss you as racist because of that. Are you racist? That, and that's what I find so astounding, is that one of the strongest positions I've had 
is that we have lost the ability to look at people as their individual. And, and as soon as we start putting everybody into groups and, and not allowing individuals to be heard for who they are as people, um, and that's all I wanted, was to ensure that everybody had equality before the law. Mitigating coastal erosion and elite horticultural land going into housing. That's beautiful soil. Are some of the issues locals want action on here. I'm voting for Andrew, came to my door yesterday. So you're not interested in voting for the by in the by-election? No, not this time. What, what, why is that? Do you think it's sort of... Are you tired of it? Yeah, or you just get sick of the same old thing. So you were impressed that he came and knocked on yes, your door? absolutely. Yeah, who wants to do that on a Sunday? That's a killer dog. <laughs> if Andrew Bailey keeps the seat, he'll bring in Nancy Liu, who's next on the party's list. And that's how we get to 123 seats in Parliament. And, and for, for a national coalition, it means we're a stronger, uh, stronger government. I hope you vote, though. I will definitely vote. Bailey, 14th on the list, has traditional National Party credentials. He was a farmer, a merchant banker, but there are also surprises. This is a man who drags sledges to the poles for kicks. He was with the Parachute Regiment of the British Army. He spent one summer holidays trekking on reindeer with a tribe in Mongolia. We decided to follow the routes of Lawrence of Arabia on camels. No one had ever done it before. Look at that, isn't that fabulous? Beautiful. But the treks are now behind him and right now he'd rather admire the Tuakau River Valley and hope he can continue his work as the MP for Port Waikato. That is Fina Owen reporting from Port Waikato. Voting is open until 7 o'clock on Saturday night. Hey, Akubane, we're back after the break. Just before we go, a quick update. One News understands National will be doing things by phone this morning. Christopher Luxon and National will not be at the Cordis Hotel, where he has been based over the last few days for negotiations. We will bring you any further coalition negotiation updates at onenews.co.nz throughout the day and on One News at 6 tonight. For now, though, kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thank you for watching and thank you for your feedback. Hey, te wiki. We will see you next Sunday from 9 a.m. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.